Welcome to Life of the School, episode 13. Hello and welcome to Life of the School. My name is Aaron Matthew and I'm a biology teacher from Acton Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. On the Life of the School podcast, I like to sit down and talk with fellow life science teachers from around the country, talk to them about who they are, how they got in the classroom, what they're currently working on, and where they hope to go in the future. This week I sit down with Paul Strode. Paul is a biology teacher at Fairview High School in Boulder, Colorado. Throughout his career, Paul has taught a variety of science courses in both high school and university settings. In addition to his work in the classroom, Paul is a powerful and prolific communicator about the nature of science and science education. Paul has also created materials and presented teacher workshops for the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. A particularly popular resource Strode has created for HHMI is on the teaching of math and statistics and biology. He also has published peer-reviewed scientific articles, middle school science textbook chapters, and a book entitled Why Evolution Works and Creationism Fails with physicist Matt Young. Paul has been interviewed about bird migration and climate change on NPR's All Things Considered and about teaching evolution on KGNU Denver, Colorado's How on Earth. Paul's recent published work includes the article Hypothesis, Generation, and Biology in the American Biology Teacher and his contribution of getting students to think like scientists to the Unity and Diversity Writing Project. Paul also blogs about his teaching at Mr. Dr. Science Teacher. Paul earned his Ph.D. in Ecology and Environmental Science from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign in 2004 while studying the spring forest ecology of migrating songbirds. Strode earned a Master's of Science Education from the University of Washington, Seattle in 1996. Welcome, Paul. Hello. Welcome. Uh, so this is this is now my, you are now my official first complete cold call. I'm going to call you a cold call teacher. Okay. Um, I call you, uh, so Paul, it, for, I, I, I don't know, it's funny, I was talking to some colleagues this week who I teach with, and uh, you know, they, a couple of them listen to the show, and they ask me, oh, who you got lined up? And I'm like, Paul Strode, and they're like, I know that name. And I was like, oh, do you know Paul? And they're like, no, but I know that name. And I was like, yeah, you should know that name, because uh, <laughs> Paul is a prolific writer, as I mentioned in the intro, about, um, about both, you know, I think of you as an advocate for uh, the challenge challenges that come with teaching, um, both the sort of changing from historically what science teaching was, plus the external challenges that come to teaching. Um, so I'm, I'm very excited to have you on the podcast. Sure. So thanks, thanks for joining me. So I'd like to start with my first question. I'd like to ask everybody, um, how did you become a science teacher? Well, um, I guess I can start back in, in, uh, in high school. Um, I was, uh, I went to a little high school in Indiana, uh, 450 students, and um, I really wasn't good at at anything that was um, deemed um, worthy to be good at, like sports. <laughs> um, and uh, and so I found I was good at I was good at school, and um, and a lot of the classes that 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 a lot of my peers avoided were the science classes. And I thought, okay, that's something I can really excel at and be good at. So, so I took, um, I took biology as a freshman, which was, um, uncharacteristic at my school. Um, it was a sophomore class and, um, and just took as much science as I could and, and found I was pretty good at it. Um, but, uh, my, my 
high school biology teacher um, was kind of a classic, um, it took a classic approach to biology. It was a very descriptive class. Um, and, uh, and so we spent a lot of time outside. We did insect collections and leaf collections and went on field trips. And, um, and it would just really brought the outdoors alive to me. And I, I, of course I grew up in the outdoors a lot. I'm um, growing up in a small town with a river and, um, and so that's, to me, that's what, that's what science was. And what, what, what science was for me was biology and it was mm -hmm. learning what things were and, and kind of how things worked. But, um, but I didn't learn much about how to do science. And so, so in college, I just like in high school, I, I decided to, to take what I um, understood was the hardest course of study. And that was pre-med mm -hmm. and so pre-med major and, um, and quickly realized that that I just couldn't compete with a lot of the other med students, pre-med students. Um, and so I, I ended up doing the pre-med program, but but not with the intention of ever going to med school. Um, at the same time, I was a summer camp counselor in Vermont in the summers. And, um, and I got to my senior year and I had to figure out what it was I was going to do with the rest of my life. And so I, I you know, did some soul searching and um, realized, well, look, gosh, I, I really love working with kids. And... Um, and so I hadn't taken any education courses or anything. So I, I convinced my parents that it was worth me being in school for another couple of years to get all my education courses out of the way and do my student teaching. And at the same time, I took uh, tons more biology and, um, and then moved to Seattle and found a teaching job. Hmm. So that's, and, and I also, my, my dad is a, a former college professor. So I, I grew up um, around education. Yeah, so you were you were familiar with the that that profession. I'm I'm curious. You said you know you you made made the comment that you really didn't know you you didn't really know what science was or how to do science when you sort of went through high school. Exactly. And was there a moment in college? So you went through college, and I I took very similar courses in college, and I was a pre med. I sort of I think I had a very similar philosophy, although I I was a little bit more. Uh, yeah, I went to a very academic school. I went to a, you know, the cool kids did well in school, in the school I went to. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and I was not a great high school student. Um, I was really good at any subject that I found hard and interesting and compelling. Um, and I know that when I went to college, a lot of those early classes you take are very much that descriptive nature. You know, right. you take intro biology, you take botany, you take it, and they it's a lot of a professor telling you what you should know and then testing on that. So did you, did you get any inklings about the nature of science while getting that undergraduate degree? Well, as a, as a senior, uh, my first of three senior years, <laughs> I, um, I did a, a, an independent study project on, um, on the, the local river. And, um, and there was, there was talk of removing some old dams that, that were along the river. And, um, and so, so one thing I, I went to assess is the um, is is what what effect the presence of the dams have on the the uh, dissolved oxygen in the river, mm -hmm. and so um, so it was it was pretty simple question, um, and uh, and I just went out and just took a bunch of samples um, up and down the river at several sites and and analyzed them for for dissolved oxygen, um, and. Uh, I think I did some statistics. I don't know. Um, I, I, I must have. And, uh, and I, I then 
kind of wrote it up and presented it to a, a, a couple of professors um, and, uh, and they've deemed it worthy. Um, and so, but, but I, I don't, I was, I was doing, I was doing science, but I don't think I was, I was doing anything that resulted in making any kind of major claims and backing up those claims with lots of evidence. And I, I really didn't, I didn't see, I, I didn't understand that part of the scientific process. I just thought it was, all right, so you're going to go ahead and collect a bunch of data. You're going to look at your data and then you're going to say, here, here's what I found. Um, and I don't think I even did much background research at all. I just learned how to, how to do the analysis and, and that was it. Yeah. So you, you then go off and you become a science teacher for a few years and then you take a break. Um, and then you come and you go and I maybe say take a break is the completely wrong thing to say. You, you decide to go get a you know advanced degree. You go get to get PhD. So maybe take a break. You you shift gears and you you go back into studying again. And you know you mention uh, you know I mentioned the introduction that uh, Unity University uh, essay that you wrote about the importance of having students think like a scientist. Right. And so um, I know from reading a bunch of your writings that sort of that that going to get your PhD was really when you started making that sort of shift about what it was to think like a scientist. Right. Um, so, you know, I'm curious what your classroom looks like, you know, if you were to compare what your classroom looks like now to sort of that first window of time before you got the PhD, how does, you know, the, the work of a scientist, you know, how does that manifest itself differently now than say, you know, 20 years ago when you first stepped in the classroom? Oh, oh sure. It's uh, night and day. Um, so I was, I, I think I was really good at teaching content. Um, mm-hmm. By the time I, I finished my, uh, my six years of college, um, I, uh, I, I was really interested in, in biochemistry. And, and so, so that I, I really got excited when I taught uh, molecular structures and, and things like glycolysis and photosynthesis. Um, and, yeah. uh, and I also was was really interested in in uh, in evolution, although I wasn't very well versed in it. Um, I certainly understood its importance, and um, but yeah, I was I was one of those. I, I don't know if you've read Berkman and Plutzer um, and their uh, their all of their their research on um, on what teachers are actually teaching in the classroom as far as evolutionary theory goes, and they've discovered there's this cautious sixty percent of teachers that that um, that are so tentative about teaching evolutionary mm-hmm. theory that they they basically let all kinds of other ideas into the classroom, um, and so that was really undermining it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was one of the cautious sixty, um, but anyway, I, I was really good at teaching content. Um, I did I, I did lots of classic canned labs where where you hand out the, the the worksheet and students follow the procedure and they they get data and they. They think they've failed if their data don't match what they what they thought they were supposed to get, and um, and so uh, so I really um, didn't. I wasn't teaching science. I was just teaching the content of of biology. Um, and so so in graduate school, um, it was a, a huge wake up call. Um, I thought that that science um, was just going out and learning more content. Mm-hmm. And uh, and learning something specific, and and becoming kind of an expert in that particular area, um, but I wasn't prepared for all of the intense challenges from my committee, and from my from my graduate student peers about what what are you doing, 
why are you doing it? How are you going to do it? What is it going to mean? Um, and uh, so that was that was a, a big change. And so so when I came back to the classroom, I came back with a, a whole new um, idea about what it meant to to actually learn science. Um, so and 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 also to uh, I, I had to teach myself statistics in order to yeah. analyze my data. Um, and I didn't, I hadn't had any statistics classes except in my master's program. I did a, I took a, a basic educational statistics class and it was, um, it's basically how to analyze, uh, exam grades and things like that. It had nothing to do with how to analyze, um, scientific data. And, um, so when I came back to the classroom, I was convinced that if I could learn statistics, so could my students. Um, it was just math. Yeah. Yeah, you were probably one of the few people in the country who wasn't freaked out when the new AP came out, and it was like, "Yep, yeah, supposed to add standard deviation," because <laughs> you were already yeah, you were already doing it. Sure, sure. Yeah, um, I took a, I took a stats class uh, um, a couple of years ago specifically because of that, and it was like I had done statistics when I had worked in a lab, but it was like I learned the statistic I you know how to do the statistical test for the experiment that I was running. Right. So. I would be like, you know, I collected data and then my the PI in the lab would say, yeah, you need to do, I, I can't even tell you what he told me, but he's like, you need to do this. So I then looked up how to do that statistical test and did it so that I could add that in. But in terms of understanding statistics and having a, a sense of, you know, uh, how I would go about looking at data and then making some choices about what statistical test it would be, uh, I had no idea um, what that would be. Um, so I'm curious because you you brought this up. Um, so you, what sort of what grade levels are you are you teaching uh, right now? Uh, what what classes are you currently teaching? Uh, well, I've got all grade levels um, in, okay. in my in my three preps. Um, mm -hmm. So I teach a class called pre. So we're an IB diploma uh, school, mm -hmm. and um, and we have these courses that freshmen and sophomores take called pre I classes, and mm -hmm. so. Um, so in, in pre-IB biology, it, it, and it's a typical high school life science course. And so we, have, we, we cover all the, the, the classic state-mandated um, curriculum mm -hmm. components. Um, but, uh, but we also bring down um, into that class um, some of the IB curriculum components that, um, that, that we think that those students can handle at that level. And so... Um, so we have both freshmen and sophomores in that class. Um, and, uh, and then I teach a class and then I teach, um, a, a hybrid IBAP biology class to seniors. Um, and, uh, and I teach a, a third class, just, just one section called science research seminar. Um, and so, so in that class, I've got sophomores, juniors, and seniors. So, so across all three, uh, courses, I've got, I've got all the, the four grades. And you, it sounds like, you know, because of the bringing some of that con IB content down, you you have a vertical teaming approach that you, yeah you know, you, you look to match up sort of curriculum so that they, you know, I actually do something similar with my honors bio and my AP bio that I teach where I have, just like you, I have freshmen and sophomores in my um, honors bio and I've got juniors and seniors in my AP bio. And there definitely is a vertical teaming where content from one, we know what's coming, so you can foreshadow a little bit, if you will. Right. I'm curious about how, 
you know, how you d- deal with the math level of the younger students in terms of that. Do you approach teaching statistical tests to those guys? Do you, you know, how do you go about, you know, introducing the math to those younger, younger students? Well, um, we, we really approach it from, from, from the, the, the inner workings um, perspective. And, 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 and when you, when you think about what, what you're doing with statistics, with inferential statistical tests, um, you're trying to quantify the noise and, mm-hmm. and then you're trying to compare the noise to the signal. Um, and so for something like comparing two, two sets of data, um, uh, continuous data that you can calculate means with, um, you've got the signal, which is the difference between the means and that's really mm-hmm. simple. The students have been looking at the signal, not thinking about it as a signal, but looking at that for 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 years um, when they when they do their little lab activities and they they get their you know their their mean of three replicates and they compare it to the other mean and it's bigger. So okay, we've got you know we got a change or we got a difference. Um, so so there's the signal, but then. Um, then quantifying all the noise, that's that's where you you calculate the statistic called variance, and yeah. um, and that's really just math. It's it's the same. It's it's math that they have been doing since probably fifth grade. Um, it's 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 subtracting one number from another, um, squaring that number, and uh, and then adding up all those squared differences and. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so the, the actual math is really pretty simple, um, but but why you're doing those steps is 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 the new thing for them, uh, yeah. and and how doing those steps um, allows you to to quantify all of the the the, the noise, the variance um, in in each set of data. That that's that's what I think um, a lot of teachers probably, and I'm just guessing here, probably miss when they're trying to teach statistics, they just go right to the statistical test. And, yeah. and, and the kids do it in Excel or in their graphing calculators and out pops a, a number and a, a, a statistic, like a T and a, and a P value. And then, mm-hmm. and then they, they try and interpret what, what, what does that number mean? Um, and so that, that's not very that's not very helpful if you don't know how you even got that number. Yeah, I, I find that talking about noise, and the way I usually talk about noise is when I'm talking about controls, uh-huh. particularly like setting up a negative control with my kids. And so, you know, we run an experiment and, you know, sort of the classic catalase lab, for example, you know, where you mix liver extract with hydrogen peroxide. Mm-hmm. And the kids are like, well, why would we mix, you know, water with the liver extract? And I was like, well... If it bubbles, you know, if you get any foam, like the action of putting that in, you get a little bit of a bubble there. And so if that bubble was a certain amount, that would tell me that just the, you know, the procedure that we're going through produces a little bit of data. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't want that to influence the, the size of the effect that you're getting, you know, in your other tests, right? So, you know, if you were to add hydrogen peroxide to boiled catalase and you get this little bubble at the bottom, well, that could just be because of the materials and methods you use. Um... So what you're saying is, uh, and I, the bigger thing that I think um, is an issue with statistics is that um, the N that we use um, in standard biology classes is often uh, one, um, right? You know, that, yeah, sure. or you know, six. You know, six groups do something, and so I have six lab groups, so it's six. So my N is six. Right. But a lot of times, a group analyzing their own data, you know, what they will say is like, well, our group worked, and group three over there, they didn't work. So should we ignore group three? Right. <laughs> like. 
like no you don't ignore data like data is data well, and that, take that to me that's account. where that group three that, yeah. that that didn't get the the predicted result that's that might be something really interesting you know that yeah. that's you want to explore that and why yeah. what 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 happened with group three that resulted yeah. in that and um and that's I think that's where that's where when you're you're really doing science, when yeah. you're 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 looking at the results you got and trying to figure out why did we get that in this case and that other thing in this other case why did that group get this, why is that outlier there? Sometimes mm -hmm. if you if you pursue the outliers, that's when you make the really the really interesting discoveries. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that you know, as you described it, the the students looking at the right number. I you know, I teach in a very traditional school, and I, you know, the kids have grown up with looking for the right answer. Like they, that's that's sort of the nature of how they've been taught how science works. You know, we do this can lab, and we get the right answer. So when I ask them to do something, and they go, you know, is this data any good? And I say, all data is good. Um, <laughs> they they don't. There's no such thing. Like the data is the data is not has no moral judgment to it. The data is data. Um, you have to interpret it. Um, I think it is, it, there is a, you know, as much as I like, I would like them to challenge and, oh, I hear the dog coming. Um, <laughs> as much as I would like to challenge, uh, you know, the, the status quo and sort of push them, there is a level of comfort that I have to get the kids into. It could take some training, particularly with my, my very high flying, very good honor students who've always done really well. Sure. It takes a little training to get them comfortable with, the, the messiness that is science, um, that, that the data isn't always good. And, you know, in the sense that the data doesn't always match your expectations, but that's where the exciting science takes place. Right. Uh, so, um, so this actually brings really nicely into, um, the next question. Another topic that you've written a lot about is that hype idea of a hypothesis. Yes. And, um, and I, I will tell you, I have read and reread your hypothesis writing so many times, uh, <laughs> mostly because I do it wrong. So, um, okay. so I'm going to ask you to first explain, you know, what I'm doing wrong. So I'm going to tell you what I do. Okay. I have my students write if, then, because format. Okay. Um, and, and so first, tell me what it is that I'm doing wrong, and then next, tell me how I should fix it. Well, give tell me what what do they say in the if part? So what I tell them in the if. And then as I try to get them to link their variables. Okay. Yeah. So if I, if I change my independent variable, right. then this will happen in the dependent variable. Exactly. And then because, and then they, they link it to a, uh, you know, a, a, something that they researched ideally that will go into uh, an introduction right up. Sure. Sure. So, so you, you got the, the you got the whole package mm -hmm. uh, and that's a pretty classic way to, to, to have students write hypotheses. Um, so you've got, if I do this, then this will happen because this is how the world works. Yep. Um, and, and so I, my, um, my argument against that form is, is that, um, many teachers drop the because mm -hmm. and, and they just teach the, the classic if then, um, and, and they call that the hypothesis. Now, your hypothesis is in your because statement. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I think in a, um, in, in a, a, a logical thinking um, procedure, you, you start out with the hypothesis you're testing. Mm -hmm. um, so here's how I think the world works. Here's, here, here's, a, here's an observation I've made. Here's a question I've asked about that observation. Here's my tentative answer on trial, which is the hypothesis. Hmm, okay. 
and I think this is how the world works. Um, and, and then you, you design an experiment to test that claim and, and you make a prediction um, based on the specific methods you're going to use and the, the results you plan to, to measure. Um, and so I think that going with if then because puts the hypothesis at the end of the thought process. My daughter's taken off. Um, <laughs> spend the day with a friend. See you later. Okay. Um, so, uh, so, so anyway, uh, it's, I, I, I think that at least at the, at the level where our students are right now in high school, um, and, and even of course, back in middle school, and even elementary school, they, I think it's helpful if they keep all of those parts separate. Um, and, and so, so I have my students, they, they read a research question and if they're mm -hmm. doing hypothesis testing and sometimes they're not, sometimes yeah. they're just doing discovery science. Uh, yeah. They're just making observations and, the, and, and their hypotheses come at the end about, you know, why they think they made these observations. They may never test those hypotheses, but, um, but at least they're they're launching them at the end. So so I I, I have my students um, write very specific statements and label them research question, uh, mm -hmm. hypothesis, um, prediction, and and, uh, and and just keep them separate so they can see these are very different ideas that, that they're that they're all using together to to um, to do science. So what you're saying is that because statement is the hypothesis yeah. and the if then is the prediction. Exactly. It's the yeah. It's a it's a method followed by a a, a prediction. Yeah. Yeah. Because the if so is the it, method. Your plan test. Yeah. yeah. So um, yeah, I was thinking about why you know why do I do the if then because I it, you know just as you said drop the hypothesis. In fact, my students right now are doing a lab um, and. Uh, I took the hypothesis out of the rubric, and um, it was with a little bit of a uh, challenge from some of my colleagues who we taught with the first time I did it. Um, we are doing uh, the GMO testing. Mm -hmm. um, so what they're doing is they're, you know, they brought in foods, and they're grinding them up and extracting the DNA, and then we, um, you know, do PCR and probe for some specific sequences to see if they're genetically modified ingredients. Wow. In there, we follow up with the gel, and we look at the bands. That's fair. So, um, That's great. Yeah, so... What I said to the, you know, to my colleagues when I was first coming out of flat, I think the first year we did it, we had a hypothesis statement in there, and I, I tried to shoehorn a hypothesis statement in there, and we got done. I was like, man, these hypotheses are terrible. These are not like they don't know. They have no real reason to know it unless somebody else already did this experiment. Which why would they pick something in that case? And I was like, we should just get rid of it and just add more background research into some, you know, like have them write out a more thorough introduction about, you know, the background of this material, redistribute those points. But I felt like the hypothesis was really kind of pointless because it was yeah. discovery science. Yes. Yeah. So, so yeah. And, and, and there are, but, but there are teachers who you think, you know, you've got to shove a hypothesis in there because that's how science works. And no, <laughs> yeah. we're not, we're, we, we it, there, there is a lot of hypothesis testing, but there's also tons of, of science discovery. Yeah. And then just as you said, the, you know, what would I call the error analysis at the end, they may propose a hypothesis um, for a future test, you know, sure. um, how they might go to learn more information about this and their analysis. So everything comes out perfectly. They might go, well, you know, we tested food X 
And now what we need to do is we need to, so the question is which of those ingredients is in here is the one that got genetically modified. So we may need to do some further testing and, you know, they might, you know, they might hypothesize which of the substances in the ingredients is most likely genetically modified and how they might go about testing that. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's, to me, that's an error analysis. And they, as you said, you never will actually do a test of that, but they can propose it. Right, right. Of course. Sure. Yeah. So. No, no, no. All right. That that I've... uh, um, that, that I've, I've worked on recently is, is, uh, is to broaden the idea of the hypothesis. And in that American biology teacher paper, I, I, um, I bring up the idea of the generalizing hypothesis, mm-hmm. uh, which is a description of a pattern in nature that you've observed. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and so you describe the pattern. Um, these two things appear to be related. Um, yeah. and, and then, um, and then you, you, you come up with a plan to test that pattern with lots and lots of, of, of data collected in a very controlled way. Um, and, and, and you predict then if that is a real pattern and I, and I, you know, collect data in this way, then, mm-hmm. um, then I should see that when this variable changes, this other one will change in this way. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so, so, so then, okay, let's, let's say that you, you confirmed, yes, I, I, I have, um, I've, I've got the pattern, um, and, and, and it seems like a real pattern. Then you ask, well, why is there even a pattern there? Um, and how yeah. is the pattern generated? And now you're, you're coming up with an explanatory hypothesis. You may never, you may never pursue the answer to that, um, because it might be too complex, yeah. Uh, might be an evolutionary question, um, but uh, but you 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 certainly can propose an explanatory hypothesis. So most of the things that we do in 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 science classes in our in our science labs, we're testing patterns, yeah. and and we're looking to see if we can confirm that the pattern exists. Um, yeah. So a lot of times it's even it's even simpler in that we're we're just, we're doing, we're having the students learn materials and methods right. um, that can be used to later do scientific research and that the students really aren't getting the opportunities to generate questions, to ask questions, to pursue their own, you know, further questions unless you set up specific time. To me, that's a, something I do, but it's something that is a smaller percentage of the activities that we do that we call labs. Sure. Um, um, you know, I think... In an ideal world, you cover way fewer topics, and you push the kids to ask a lot more questions, and work out those materials and methods, and, and then pursue those, and maybe get to the point where they're asking those generalized, you know, <laughs> hypotheses and starting down that pathway. Mm-hmm. Um, but for an introductory biology class, there's only so much you can ask them to do. Sure. So, all right. So now I got to go back and rewrite all my rubrics. Um, so. Um, <laughs> But uh, well, and I do think it, it poses an interesting um, it poses an interesting dilemma with uh, and one of my colleagues when I actually was talking to him about this this week, and he said he's like, well, yeah, but if on any standardized test these kids get a question and they're asked to, you know, if they if they're taking this is a, it happened to be an AP Enviro teacher, uh, and he said if they're asked to generate a hypothesis on the AP Enviro, they're expected to write an if then statement. Yeah. Um, well, I and 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 my response <laughs> to that is that that 
that they that students should do it right, regardless yeah. what, of, of what they they think they're supposed to do for some yeah. standardized test. Um, I had students um, several years ago when we we had this test called the Colorado the CSAP or yeah something. It was, a, it was their our, our state test and. Um, and my sophomores came back from the test and they said, they said, Dr. Strode, there was a question about the hypothesis and, and there was no correct answer. Uh, <laughs> and the answer we, we think that was intended to be correct was a prediction. So, well, what did you do? So, well, we just wrote on the test. There's no correct answer. <laughs> and that was great. Cause you know, it's, it's not like you're going to lose your, your state funding because your students are, are rejecting yeah what's expected of them um yeah it's, it's a it, it is a it is an interesting dilemma when the the kids get to that that standpoint and every once in a while i'll have a question that's in you know that i pulled out of a test bank that i i've been using for three or four years and you know i've refined my teaching to the point where i've i really have gotten a better explanation of it to the point where the kids really get it and they come up to me and they're like yeah this there's no right answer to this question and I realized as they're saying it that, yeah, the, this question is so overly generalized yeah. that none of these are really great answers, you know, like none of these are really great um, ways of describing the phenomena signs or asking the question the right way. And um, it's actually kind of, you know, it's, it's a dilemma in some respects because, you know, I feel like I want the kids to do well. I want the kids to, you know, um, not have any doors closed. And I realize one question isn't going to do that. Well, at the same time, there's a great deal of pride when students have a deep, such a deep understanding that they they can not only see that there's a problem with a particular question, but they understand above and beyond the deeper content. Sure. Um, there's a there's a good sense of yeah, we've gotten them to really think, and that's ultimately our goal here. Sure. All right. So um, I've, we fixed our our hypotheses. Uh, so now what you're going to do is you're going to tell me how I should go gradeless. Oh, so. Um, okay. <laughs> So one of the other things you've written about a lot, and this is a, I, you know, it's it's funny because, um, you know, I, I I think my career in a lot of ways has uh, has had a lot of parallels to what you've talked about. I did not stop and go get a PhD, um, uh, which uh, I'm jealous of, but I did, uh, you know, I do feel like the descriptive way of teaching that you started with is very much the way I started my career. Sure. And um, I, I taught for, you know, now I look at it and I go for the first more than half of my career, I wrote down. I didn't have expressed standards for the units that I gave my kids. Oh. I had the content I presented them, and then I tested them on that content. But at no point did I write down my expectations for what those kids were going to have to do on a given assessment. And so really over the last six years in particular, I've been doing a lot of work on clarifying, refining, working on those. And, you know, and they're better. They're not there, they're, but they're a work in progress. But I'm a lot closer to that. So when I look at going gradeless, I think, boy, you really have to have a great sense of what your expectations and a real clear communication to your students about what it is you expect them to do. So um, that's sort of my preconceived notion before we get into you telling me what it actually is. But um, if I was to try to do that. But so talk to me about going gradeless. Uh, you know, what prompted you to shift your grading policy and, you know, how has it been going for you since you made this change? Sure. OK. Um, so full disclosure, there's there's really no such thing as completely <laughs> gradeless because yeah. I, I'm guessing in, in, in nearly all districts across the country, you have to, you have to, to, to come to a grade at the mm -hmm. semester. Um, and so 
So in that sense, my, my classes aren't gradeless because we have to agree at the, at the end what grade a student should, what grade bin a student should be in. Um, yeah. And, uh, but, but getting to that, the, the process you use to get to that can look uh, different. And, um, and so, so the, 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 the history of my process goes back to um, me teaching this class called Science Research Seminar that I mentioned earlier, um, mm -hmm. and, and also to me being married to um, a language arts teacher with a PhD. And, and she, um, she has, been, um, has been working towards going gradeless and de-emphasizing grades and focusing on learning and understanding in her classes for several years. And, um, and she's been challenging me to, to try it. And, and as, as we would, we would talk, um, she would say, well, well, what about science research seminar? I mean, you don't, do, do you grade anything in that class? And I, and I realized actually, no, I don't. Um, because students, students write and they present and, and, and there's no grade for it. I don't put points on anything. Um, they just mm -hmm. do it until I think it's, I think that they've arrived at, at, at some level of science communication and science writing. And, um, and in the end, um, if they've, if they've worked hard and they've, and they've, they've shown improvement, then there's no reason for them not to end up with an A at the end of the semester. Um, and so by, by, by removing all those points and all those grades, these kids are working harder than ever. Um, yeah. and, and it's especially because they're performing in front of each other um, and because they're getting all this feedback from me. And, and I'm saying, no, we, you, know, you, you can't move forward on this research proposal until you, until you answer all these questions and you fix all these things. Um, and so, so then she said, well, why can't you do that in your other classes? Oh, I can't. I, there's no way I can do that in, in, in my, my class of seniors because they, they need points. And she, she continued to challenge me on that. And, and actually, as I'm sitting here at the, in our home office, looking at, at the books that surround me, um, I've, I've got books titled, um, let's see, there's Creating Self-Regulated Learners, uh -huh. um, Writing Without Teachers, Detesting and Degrading Schools, um, let's see, getting smarter, not harder, <laughs> unstoppable writing teacher. Um, it's just, I'm surrounded by this. And, yeah. and so, so I can't avoid it. Um, and so, so in my, uh, in, in my school, we, we have a, a, um, an administration that's been in place for, um, for over a decade and and so so that I think that's unique for a school to have the same principle for I think what is it and now twelve or, or fifteen years, um, and also one of our assistant principals has been in place for a long long time and she's a former science teacher and she is all about innovation and trying yeah. new things in the classroom as long as you can justify what you're doing um, and and you can and you can explain it to the students and the parents and so. Um, so she's been behind this this gradeless approach in in the language arts department, and and it's trickling into other departments. Um, it's trickling a little bit into into world languages. It's 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 in my classes. Um, it's in a math class, um, and uh, 
and it's in I think it's in a government class. And so so there are are, are there's a small group of teachers that are all trying to de-emphasize grades and focus on learning and understanding. And so in uh, in my biology classes, um, I I don't put points on anything, um, even exams. They 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 take an exam, um, and uh, and I. I just circle the ones that need more work, mm-hmm. give them back to them. And, um, and I might give them a little bit of guidance. Um, like, like, a, they, there, there might be a, a graph that they're, that they're answering a question about and, and they think very basic, like, um, like there's a trend mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. without, with nothing coming off the graphs, I'll say, you know, data with a question mark. Um, and uh, and so then they, they they get those back and 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 they they get together with their table groups then they workshop them and mm-hmm. they, they help each other get to better answers and then they turn them in again and um, and I'll, I'll 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 check put check marks by the ones that I think they they um, they've they've arrived at a good understanding um, and explanation uh, with or or also I'll put another circle around um, a question. And I'll, and I'll use different colored pens. Like I'll start out with red and then I'll go with purple and, and they'll do their corrections in green. And so I can see all of this, all this progress. Um, and, uh, and some things might not even show up in the, in the grade book. Like in my, my pre-IB biology class, they did this huge cell project where, where we gave them um, a prompt. Um, there were four different prompts with, um, with, with cellular processes. And, and like, for example, one, one group was, modeling um, the uh, cystic fibrosis uh, uh, mutation and, um, and how, how, what it looks like normally and, 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 and what happens when there's the CFTR mutation. Um, and they're doing these on big pieces of butcher paper and these big, beautiful models. And um, there wasn't even a, a column in the grade book for it. Um, they, but they did incredible work on it. And, and one reason is because they had to they had to explain their models to each other, and, and so um, so you don't want to be the group that, that has the crappy project yeah, where yeah. you didn't you didn't do anything because it's gonna it's gonna be obvious as as other groups come around to look at your at your poster they will have been at several posters that are beautiful and they look at yours and it's just crap um, so so there there's there's an incentive there to to do good work. Um, and so, so in the end, the students then, oh, oh, and and I should mention all along the way they're writing reflections um, and in shared Google Docs, shared with me, and um, so they're reflecting on on every and every unit that we do. They're um, they're they're inserting images of their work, pictures from their lab notebooks, pictures of of some of their really great answers on exams, pictures of them doing lab activities, um, pictures of them building molecules and. Um, just all this this cool evidence, and then at the end of the semester, they write um, they write a grade claim or grade request letter to me. And um, yeah, so so yeah, so now I guess the question is, what do they write their reflections based off of? Um, do they so do they end up writing a letter that that basically says, you know, this quarter we were working on these certain sets of learning objectives and they have to sh- provide specific evidence for them or um, well, yeah, they so so we have we have learning targets. 
okay. um, for, for every unit. And, um, and the, the exams, the exam questions are aligned with all the learning targets. So if they know the learning mm -hmm. targets really well, then they're, they're going to do fine on the exams. Um, and in their, in their, so their, the reflections documents are actually these quite large pieces of work that they, that they generate during the, the semester. And, and then for their grade claim letter, they pull their best work from those reflections and, and say, here's, you know, here, here's all my best work. And I give them some, some, some guidance. There's a, a, a guide for your grade claim letter um, that I yeah. have. And, um, and they, they just, um, they just make an argument and they back it up with evidence. And, um, and most of the time they are right. And, yeah. and there's, there's no, there's, there's, there's no question. I'm like, and I, and I, I agree. Yes. Mm -hmm. You nailed it. Or sometimes, um, they're, uh, they're a little silly in what they're, <laughs> um, claiming they achieved. And, um, but you're going to get those kids. Those are the kids that, that are going to, are going to ask for extra credit and they're going to, um, they're going to ask for, for, for you to, um, to, uh, um, round up their grades and, um, they're, they're, you all, you'll always have those students that are, that are trying to do, trying to game the system and, and, um, and I don't know how to avoid that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I guess it's, you know, I mentioned earlier sort of the culture. There are kids who in the culture of school, they, um, you know, in the phrasing, they do school, right. you know, they, the getting points in school is definitely a game. And so they, that's what they're doing. They're getting the points, <laughs> you know. Um, so yours is very much not based off of that. It's a classic standards-based grading system where uh, you have to do that. So I think if a kid has gone through school and their whole experience was, well, I the test is coming up, so I've got to spend the next two days working really hard in this class because my next test is in this class, that's a kid who's going to, that's a kid who's going to have a hard time, I think, with your system. <laughs> Right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. My my yeah. goal is that I, I want the students to fo to be interested in what they're doing, yeah. and I want the interest to be authentic. And I think yeah. sometimes huh. having grades, um, and 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 having this 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 grade that is constantly in front of them on the we use an online grading system. I think most people mm -hmm. are doing this now, um, and so they're constantly looking at that single that 89.4 percent yeah uh, and it, it 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 i think it diminishes their interest in the in the work that they're doing um yeah because they're so focused on that number and they'll do anything to change that number uh, and but that might not include actually enjoying the learning yeah All right. it's it's i i'm excited to see your continued writing on this because i think it's um you know, I, I, I wonder about what are assessments and what are grades and what are the points of assessments and grades. And, you know, it, it's to help students reflect uh, on what they've learned and sort of see where they are in the journey. But in a lot of ways, the system has moved to the point where it's, you know, it's not. It's a game. How many points can I get um, and how do I get there? Mm -hmm. And I think when you look at all of the problems that you have in class, um, in any class, in any situation, whether it's anything from, um, you know, a, a student who is not got the foundation to go into a particular class and then they're 
they're really stressed out, so they're putting all these extra hours in because they need to get a certain grade. They're focused on the grade and not necessarily their preparedness and learning and what they need to fill in, or whether you look at something more severe like cheating. Mm -hmm. All of those systems are based off of the gaming of points and not looking at the 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 process of learning. Right. Um, it's almost like the, it's it's almost like you know you run a race. Um, do you focus on running the race, just the race, or do you look at your training to build up to it? And you know the tests are sort of the event, um, but so much goes more goes into it than the event. And right. it's if we only assess the event and we don't think of it more holistically, you know that that's a problem. Um, right. And when you're young, you can just show up and run real hard. Um, <laughs> when you get old, <laughs> the training becomes the important part. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so you know, in in summary, um, I I I happen to 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 be married to someone who is um, who is wholly focused on de-emphasizing grades, and she's even working on a book right now called Stop Grading. Um, and uh, and and a lot of this comes from. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Alfie Cohn, um, yeah. his The Case Against Grades. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, I pulled up a little excerpt here on the, on the, the screen and, and, um, and you, you mentioned rubrics and I'm not, I'm, I'm not coming after you for, for using nope. <laughs> okay. Um but, uh, but he's got a quote from a student here, it's where how he starts out. And the student says, I remember the first time that a grading rubric was attached to a piece of my writing. Suddenly all the joy was taken away. I was writing for a grade. <laughs> I was no longer exploring for me. I want to get that back. Will I ever get that back? <laughs> yeah. That's pretty harsh. Uh, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, we want, yeah. Them, we want them to be doing authentic work. And, and, yeah. and um, so, if, so that's our goal. And, yeah. and, and I guess I'll, my question is what, what is inauthentic work? Uh, um, <laughs> well, it's, you know, doing, doing what you're told to do, so that it, so so that you can you you can you can you can be then given that 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 grade that those yeah. points and so so it becomes currency um, mm -hmm. the points become a form of currency and and students students create this product and then we pay them with with these points and and unfortunately um, colleges and universities have made these points in extremely valuable. Yeah, and um, and we're fighting against that. Um, so so when I'm challenged by by someone who says, well, well then how are you? How do you know who's, you know, who the top students are in the class? Um, if if uh, if half of them are 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 achieving A's, I said, well, I can easily tell you who the top students are. Just mm -hmm. ask me, um, and and I can show you their their great work. Um, and and so I think the that's that's where letters of recommendation come in and I think colleges are actually really starting to focus in on those letters and those stories that we tell about students. Um, so, so that, that's where you can, where you can, you can really help those, those fantastic students shine is through those letters. Uh, okay. That's, this is great. It's a great food for thought. I'm going to come back and listen to this like 10 more times <laughs> later this year <laughs> as I, as I think about my grading as I go forward. But I, uh, I think it's I think it's great that you're you're out there pioneering this this stuff, and I know you know it's not in a vacuum. You're not alone. There's a lot of people having these conversations, yeah. but it's a uh, it's wonderful to be able to talk to somebody who's trying these out because I think um, 
I mean, changing a system is hard. I know. <laughs> and what yeah, you're doing is part of your of your your administration, especially. Yeah. Um, and I know a lot of teachers don't have that. They don't have that support. Yeah. So I, I, I think I feel like I may have already an- we've already answered this question because my next question was, you know, like, what are you looking forward to in your classroom in the upcoming year? So I don't know if it's more along this or if you want to think more on the science side. But, you know, when you think about the next few years, what are you what are you looking forward to? Um, well, you're right. I'm looking forward to 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 uh, continuing to pursue and, and hone this uh, this 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 focus on learning and understanding and and, uh, and away from grades. Mm hmm. Um, I'm looking forward to learning more biology um, because this is the century of biology, and um, and you know every every week I get Science Magazine and and it changes something I'm going to teach that week because holy cow this is cool. Yeah. Um, here's here's something new we just learned, and um, and so so I'm looking forward to to, to learning new new content. Um, I'm. Uh, I'm looking forward to writing more. Um, I really enjoy writing, and um, oh, and and I'm also looking forward to to uh, in my 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 seniors, my class of seniors, IB AP Bio, um, to uh, to focusing more on uh, Sean Carroll's new book, um, The Serengeti Rules. I don't know if you are familiar yeah. with that, um, but that is changing the way I teach. His thesis in that book is everything is regulated. So. To, to me, it's kind of like that moment when I, I, I first um, read um, Dobzhansky's 1973 essay in American Biology yeah. Teacher, Nothing in Biology Makes Sense Except the Light of Evolution. Everyone knows that statement. Yeah. Um, I think you can also say nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of regulation. Mm. Um, and, uh, and so what Sean has put together is just a really fantastic journey through um, – through biological processes from molecules up to megafauna and how mm-hmm. they're, uh, they're all regulated by these basic rules, yeah. which just is just great. It's all, it connects so much in biology. So I'm excited about, about um, bringing that focus more into my biology classroom. Great. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to our picks. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. So well, that's oh, I totally jumped the gun. That's <laughs> mine. It's mine. It's mine. I'm gonna I'm gonna push you a little bit on it because okay. I I want to get a little bit more about one of your resources you talked about. But yeah, yeah, you, yeah. you did. You jumped into our picks so early, but that's good. I'm I'm happy about that because okay. it is. I think it's an important concept and sure. um, definitely stuff that we're gonna be excited about. Um, I'm tempted to jump into my pick because my response about what I'm excited about kind of fits right in there. Okay. Um, <laughs> so uh, when uh, you're not teaching. Um, I know I saw a picture of you. Uh, what was it? it? Says it was a certain number of miles and certain degrees weather. Both of them were in single digits uh, oh, earlier yeah. this week. But <laughs> when Paul uh, when Paul Strode's not teaching, what do you like to do? Um, well, I like to write, of course. Um, mm-hmm. I really enjoy writing, but uh, I also um, I, I love to 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 exercise. Um, and uh, and I've uh, a friend of mine, um, engineering professor at University of Illinois that I, I ran with a ton when I was in grad school, he, um, he last year in December sent me a text and, and he, he said, he said, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm just a, a few, what did he say? He, say, he says, I'm almost to 21,900. Um, and, and I thought, what the heck is he talking about? So I, I did a little math and 
And I thought, wait, what if I divide 21,900 by 60? And it turns out it was 365. And mm -hmm. I thought, oh, he's trying to, he's trying to exercise 60 minutes a day on average for an entire year. Um, <laughs> and so I thought, okay, that's my challenge for 2016. Uh, so, um, so anyway, it's, it's pretty easy in Boulder to, to get outside and, and yeah. go for a hike or a run or, or a grot and get on the roads on the bike. And so I really, um, I really enjoy doing that. And, and of course I enjoy hanging out with my family. We watched a, a great movie last night um, called across the universe. It's, I don't know if you've heard it, heard of it. It's um, it's all based on the Beatles songs. Oh yeah. 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 I remember seeing oh, that a few years really ago. Really clever. Um, and uh, has some really, really tough moments in it. Uh, Vietnam war moments. And um, but it's, it's a really neat movie. That's neat. Yeah, I I, I noticed your because I I'm also usually outside running or biking and uh, I'm right now we're in we're in the teens we're waiting for what's our, called our first plowable snow of the year here oh, in Massachusetts. Okay. Um, okay. So we're there's the, we're in the winter winter storm watch right now. I think wow. we have technically an advisory for late tonight into early tomorrow morning. Um, but I, I tend to get to be a little bit of a wimp when it gets into the teens and single digits about getting outside. Um. <laughs> well, my brother lives in Helena, Montana, and so if oh. he's going to go run it at negative ten, you know, <laughs> I can run at three degrees. Yeah, well, we do have technology, and I do have a treadmill that's about ten feet to my left right now. So, um. <laughs> <laughs> well, my bike is in the garage on a on a cycle ops trainer. So, yeah, I, yeah, my uh, my bike's right next to the treadmill. Um, so, <laughs> but I, I hate the, I hate the bike trainer. So unless I'm unless I'm training for a triathlon, I'm I have a hard time finding myself getting on that thing. Well, the last uh, time I was on my bike, I was listening to to your your podcast. <laughs> well, it's a, that's that's how I got into audiobooks was through the uh, right. through the bike trainer uh, was to to get into that. So, all right, great. So um, uh, before we get to our uh, our extended picks of the weeks, do you have any question for me? Um. Well, um, yeah. So what, what inspired you to start this project, um, life of the school? Yeah. So, um, at last year at, so at 2015, uh, NABT conference, um, I had, uh, I, I had got a, a fellowship to work for the American Association of Immunologists. Um, and in that it was a, an amazing fellowship. They basically, uh, everyone who got in the fellowship went out to Long Beach, California, and we went to an immunology course. Um, and then we all got basically paid stipends to work in labs during the summer. Mm -hmm. And then the group of us were brought back to present at NABT. And so following in the NABT conference, um, I was sitting around a table, you know, we're sort of celebrating the talk. And I'm sitting around with uh, a teacher who teaches in East L.A. and a teacher who teaches in St. Louis and another teacher who teaches in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. We're just talking, you know, teaching. And, you know, kind of going back and forth and saying, no, I, well, I, but I do this and I do that. And, you know, we sat there for, you know, it was probably a couple of hours. Um, and this is not a group of teachers who we don't work together. We work with very different populations. We work in different schools. But we had this commonality that went through us. And um, and from that, I, I said, you know, I want to have this kind of conversation on a regular basis. I want to have the ability to ask other teachers what they're doing, hear what they're doing. And, and I'm a huge podcast junkie. I listen to podcasts all the time. So um, I thought, you know, would it be great to, to do something like that and try it and sort of make this into my little professional development? And, um, you know, I, I'd originally had this thought. And, and as I was working this through, um, I realized that my first version in my head was um, a regular 
regular meeting, which is what um, Paul Anderson and David Konefke are doing on right. uh, horizontal transfer. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, from there, I, 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 you know, through a few different changes, I, I came to this idea and I thought, you know, if I did twice a month, sat down and talked with various people, I'm now checking off my state so I can get not check Colorado off my list now. Right. Got, you know, North Carolina's checked off, California. I got a lot of Massachusetts teachers as well. So, sure. um, but I would like to hear these perspectives from people who are doing interesting things that are, you know, they, they're, we're all tackling sort of different challenges. Yeah. You know, um, I'm tackling certain challenges with my students and in my environment, and I'm thinking about certain things. But you can get a little overly focused on those pieces. And I think it's good to think about the the larger goal of what are we trying to do? We're trying to help students learn science and how are other people tackling the challenges in their environment? And mm -hmm. I think it broadens your perspective. And if I can share it out and, you know, people can listen to it and get something good out of it, um, that'd be great. Sure. Yeah. And, so. and uh, you know, Robin Baleri, um, she she mentioned how how her her professional community is now this national yeah. teachers and um and that's that's so true and and when i when, when i hear from people like robin or or, or david konefke or paul anderson or or or, or all these these heavy hitters you know it it's easy to get intimidated and, <laughs> yeah. and to look at yourself and think gosh you know um i suck um but <laughs> but, uh, but we're all doing um we're all doing some really cool things. Um, we don't all have to do the same thing. Uh, yeah. Our, our goals are common. Yeah. That is to really inspire students and get them to think critically and to, to learn some biology along the way, but to be, you know, good, good skeptical thinkers and, um, and, and challenge um, people's ideas, challenge their own ideas. Um, and if we, um, we can all get there in different ways. Yeah. So, um, well, hearing you say that you think sometimes when seeing those things, people that you think, oh, I suck. Uh, that's, <laughs> that, that's, a, I, I, I personally get that feeling myself when I hear, you know, uh, you know, Robin or, or David. I, I, I think, I think the first thing I, I said to David when we were talking, um, was when I saw, you know, Paul's videos. I was, you know, the first, I think the first, first video that you watch or video series from Paul Anderson that you watch is like, oh my God, how did he do this? Why yeah. haven't I done this? I could never do that. Like you, like you, you kind of go through this process. Yeah. You don't need to do that because Paul's doing it. <laughs> but, but you know, it's funny cause I actually have been making my own videos over the last oh, year. Okay. Um, sure. but you know, different folks, you're absolutely right. Like this past unit, um, I was teaching and I don't, you don't have time to make every video you want. Right. So th this past week, I, you know, I was, I was sort of checking in with my kids and I was realizing gosh, we need to come back and check back in on transcription translation. Like, you know, I, I thought that they had got it, you know, they'd done this little thing, but we didn't go as deep as I necessarily wanted to. And the questions I was getting from the kids, they weren't really there. And I didn't have time last week to make another video. Um, so what did I do? I emailed out to all my students. I said, here's this 11 minute video on transcription and translation. We're going to come back to this and talking. And I did a, a check in with them on Friday. And so I sent it out at the beginning of the week. And then I went back and we revisited it and we only spent about 15 minutes in class. It really was not long, but the combination of we'd already touched upon it. I sent that extra little 11 minute resource. I let them work in groups on it. And then we did a little share out and the kids were like, oh, and it was, you know, a combination of giving the right resources and the right timing, the right framing, the right opportunity to have the discussion that, that helped them all get there. So, um, 
So I, I feel like, you know, I'm probably will do a check in next week with them to see if they all got there, if they were just nodding and smiling at me the way they they've learned to do or um, <laughs> if they actually got there. But I, I got the sense that there was enough of a shift within the population that the majority of them got there and the ones that don't know they don't and know they need to come and get, you know, a little extra help or ask some for follow up questions or spend a little bit more time uh, sure. on those pieces. So. All right. So uh, you already sort of previewed your pick of the week, but I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit more. Um, so um, in the March issue, um, you have two things that are associated with Serengeti's rules. One is that you wrote a, a review in American Biology Teacher, and then the second one is is uh, curriculum materials for Serengeti rules. Mm -hmm. So uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about those two pieces? Yeah. So um, so I I received a an early copy actually it was a PDF of the Serengeti rules from um, from someone at HHMI um, mm -hmm. who uh, who I'd been um, what, Laura Laura Bonetta um, who has been giving me work curriculum writing work for biointeractive at HHMI for for a few years and um, and so they're they're they had just come out with what well, hadn't been published yet, but they, they were just in the final stages of, of putting together um, the uh, Keystone Species film with, with Robert Payne, mm -hmm. Mestis, and the, the whole the starfish and Trophic Cascades. And so she wanted me to, to write the teacher's guide for that film. And she said, hey, chapter six in Sean's new book, The Serengeti Rules, might be some helpful material for you to pull from. Yeah. teacher's guide and I thought what Sean's got a new book <laughs> and, um, holy cow I, I get I get to read it before it's published and um, so so I, I went ahead and read the whole book before I started working on the teacher's guide and and I, I it was just mind-blowing why hadn't I thought of of teaching biology in this way before this this focus on on homeostasis um, yeah. you know, regulation and regulatory mechanisms and um and so, so I am. Um, I'm, I'm I'm friends with uh, with Elizabeth Cowles, who 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 runs the the book review for American Biology Teacher. And so I wrote to her and I said, Sean's got a new book. I've got an early copy of it. Can I can I write can I review this for ABT? And she's of course sure. So yeah. so I wrote the the review and um, and it was and and um, and I wasn't the only one that uh, that wrote a review in that. In that uh, in that issue, there are two reviews, and um, but anyway, I guess what what happened then was Sean's editor um, at Princeton University Press read my review, and in my review, I I, I mentioned how I thought this book would make um, a great supplement for 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 a biology course, um, everything from from a, an upper level biology course in high school to um, a a general biology course in college. Mm -hmm. um, I thought, gosh, if I had been, if I had read this book as a freshman in college, this would have made all the difference in how I looked at learning biology. Um, and uh, so she thought that was compelling, and 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 uh, and she she wondered if I would be interested in in uh, in thinking about um, writing some some supporting curriculum. For the book to be used in the classroom, and so we we kicked around some ideas about what might be um, what might be helpful, and um, and and she she sent my ideas out for review, 
and um, and it got back a lot of good feedback. And then over the last couple of months, I've been writing um, anticipatory question sets for students to 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 answer before reading each chapter. Um, a whole teacher's guide to the book, mm-hmm. discussion questions, and then also um, curriculum alignment with uh, with the IB curriculum, the AP curriculum, and also the NGSS Next Generation Science Standards. Um, and so that that's that thing um, is now out for review, and and the the paperback of the Serengeti Rules is going to come out in I think in April maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so Princeton wanted all of these supporting materials to be ready by the time the paperback came out so that teachers could imagine assigning the book maybe as a summer reading book and then using it in the classroom. And it's all going to be online. So it's, it's not going to be something that it's not going to be a physical thing, but uh-huh. teachers can certainly make it a physical thing, but it'll be, it'll be a, an online thing that can change and, and evolve and grow. And so the plan is to have that out later this year or yeah. early 2017 yeah, in line with the, the paperback. Yeah. And so, um, so, so I've, I've, I've been interacting with, with the book so much that it's, um, it, it's just, a, it's just wonderful. It's a wonderful book. I, I enjoy rereading it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I get new things out of it. The, the hardest chapter for me was the one on, um, on cholesterol regulation, because that was a whole new area for me. Um, and uh, and signal transduction pathways and stuff that's just not my wheelhouse and um, and so you know my my chapter is chapter six you know these perfect <laughs> cascades that's what I did my 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 PhD research on um, so so yeah, yeah I I have not gotten through the book I have it it's been on my like it's in my stack of gosh I really want to get to this one. But now maybe this is my December break reading book will be. <laughs> you'll, I think you'll fly through it. I think it, it will. Um, yeah. It's just, it's really, really a fun book. Yeah. We, we assign uh, one of our optional books for our summer reading in AP is um, Sean's uh, Making of the Fittest. Oh, yeah. Um, oh. Which is a fantastic book. And I have Endless Forms, Most Beautiful. Yep. Um, as well, which it's funny because I, um, when talking about, I'd like those two books, I blend those two books together because they have that Evo Devo theme together. Of course. Um, so, uh, when I, a lot of times I'll be describing an example from one of the books and thinking it that like a third of my AP bio students have read it, um, because there's a couple of other evolution books we provide as options and we let them choose which one they want to use. And I'll realize halfway through that the description I'm giving them is from endless forms, which they didn't read, um, But yeah, his writing is so compelling and he provides such wonderful contextual uh, cues that that bring those um, sort of base concepts that they see in the textbook out. Um, Yeah, yeah, he's a a storyteller. And yeah, yeah. In Serengeti Rules, it's really it's it's the people that stories of all the people that have done this work are really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, when he does the, that movie night at NABT, I didn't go this year. Um, mm-hmm. I was kicking myself for not going to NABT, but I remember two years ago when I was out there. And just, he is, he's a storyteller. Yeah. And whether it was up there before on the movie night or um, um, he, he, he did a couple of talks where it's just, he, he just is, he does, he tells these great stories. I saw him many, many years ago at another conference and that's exactly what it is. It's, yeah. he, he tells a compelling story. He humanizes the science uh, dramatically. Yeah. So. So tell me about your. 
All right, so my pick is in my wheelhouse, uh, which is microbes. Um, so uh, as I mentioned, that um, it was something that happened to me a few years ago is that I just started diving so deep into the microbiome. You know, you mentioned that something comes along and it, it sort of shifts your perspective. And for me, the microbiome is what did it. When I started hearing about all of the impacts of the microbiome, and um, I don't know if you've ever read uh, Martin Blazer's book, um, Missing Microbes, um, that came out a couple of years ago. Um, he basically, he's talking about, you know, how all of these health issues that we have could be because of, you know, missing microbes that, you know, we are reducing the biodiversity of the microbes that live in and on our body. Mm-hmm. And so we're creating these ecological shifts within ourselves and that could have profound health impacts. So um, I'm a, I'm super sensitive to anything that talks about microbe and microbe diversity. I'm actually prepping. Um, we will do a I do a microbe diversity lab with fruit flies where my kids try to shift the microbiome of fruit flies uh, by changing their food stocks that they're raised on. Um, that's a, it's a great lab. It teaches a lot of different techniques and those pieces. But I came across this um, article in The Scientist um, at the end of last month. So this is from November um, of, of 2016. And it says, animal microbes are unique and beneficial. Mm-hmm. And they basically just show the idea of you know, if you transplant microbes from one species into another species, it can cause a whole host of problems. Um, and and they basically they're talking about this PLOS article. And, you know, they're basically showing really how y- unique these different microbe um, pieces are. And there's been lots of other studies like this. But because it's specifically looking at, um, you know, insects, a system that you can test inside um, inside our classrooms. You can test within, you know, a high school classroom. I do it you can give um, different microenvironments or you can even inoculate um, a group with a set of microbes, um, not too challengingly. Hmm. Um, you can get these shifts. And um, also they talked to Seth Bordenstein in this. Shifts. Hmm? Say how, that again? How do you measure the shifts? So, yeah, so the our tools are not as profound as um, as somebody who has, a, you know, a, the ability to do, like, um, you know, broad sequencing. But what I do is um, I have the kids... Uh, raise the flies on set media, and then they surface sterilize them. Um, and I do not have them dissect the guts, although you can have them dissect the guts. It's just, it's a technique that I would have to tell them. So we just, you know, blunt force them. Most of the microbes are going to be in their gut mm-hmm. uh, that we're going to do. And then, um, so I have them surface sterilize them um, and then uh, homogenize the flies. And then I have them play them out on differential media. So uh, we use a variety of different uh, types of media that help select for the, the types of microbes. And then uh, we pluck the colonies and run um, 16S um, uh, PCR on them mm-hmm. to amplify them. Mm-hmm. And then we can we send those out for sequencing. Oh, you send them out? How, and yeah. That, is that very expensive anymore? It's uh, $6 a sample. Okay. So it's, um, and I do have a grant that's helping to offset the cost. And I'm wow. doing this with three AP classes. So I think last year we sent out 35 samples or something like that. So, you know, it's not cheap, but you're talking under $200. Sure. So, uh, so you, but, but even sort of qualitatively, can you, can you see differences on the plates? Absolutely. And that's sort of, so there's uh-huh. different levels. One, you know, you get to a lot of talk about sort of limitations of materials and methods. We're only doing sequenceable data, I mean, or a uh, platable bacteria. So, um, we're not getting, you know, a lot of this, the minimal, you know, we're getting the big ones. We're getting, you know, the Acetobacter, we're the Lactobacillus, the, um, you know, really big colonizable, colonizable 
um, bacteria that are in there. So we can talk a little bit about that. And um, we're amplifying them. But yeah, you can get sequenceable data this way and you can visibly see um, like when you look at um, like MRS plates, which are going to which basically select for lactobacilli, you'll get different colony colors. And you'll get yeah. different colony distribution depending on the environment that uh, the flies were raised in. Huh. So, I wonder if, if with a well, how many different colony colors do you, can you imagine that they could get? So it depends on the type of media. So with uh, I can tell you just from personal experience with the lactobacillus, you get um, sort of a whitish colony and a pinkish colony, mm-hmm. um, and you will actually get that those are phenotypic differences within the same type of lactobacillus. Oh. <laughs> So, like, that's another one of those things. That was probably, the, that was, you know, talking mind-blowing things that you discover in the lab. When I was piloting this all out in the summer, I was like, oh, look at this. I got this great piece that's here. You know, I looked at this and I looked at that and, like, look at this plate. This is all pink and this one, it's pink and white and this one, it's all white. Oh, look at I got great diversity. And I sent them all out and they were all the same type of lactobacillus. Um, but the, the colony shape um, actually will be more important than the color. Oh, um, okay. And so you will get slightly different shaped lactobacilli. Um out of there, but even if you pick like a pink and a white, they actually are just a phenotypic color difference. And I don't know enough about the bacteria to know why. Um, these are sort of questions that maybe we'll answer over the next, you know, five, 10 years as I work this project out with the kids. So, yeah. you know, as I tell the kids, you know, um, it's the, we were going to do all these series of labs and um, I get to pick the labs. And so they're my minions and I want to learn more about this. And so, um, <laughs> yeah. And yeah. And, and as a result, they're going to learn a ton, ton of cool stuff that you're excited about, which is, I think, oh, yeah. really important that, that the teacher is really excited about what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the very funny, the other very funny thing that happened. So last year, I, I mentioned sort of we got snow coming up. Last year, we got snow on either side of the weekend that we were going to do this project. Wow. So it's like we have a February break in Massachusetts. And so we were doing this basically the six days or so leading into February break. And we had a big snowstorm that came through on the Friday before the weekend and then the Monday of the weekend. So we missed two classes and I had kids who literally came in and they're like, are you okay? I know you were so planning for this. We were worried about you. (laughs) They were, they were, they were like, and I had one kid say like, I've never been disappointed that we had a snow day before, but I was looking forward to the lab, but we managed to get the lab in. Um, I was able to make some modifications. I ended up doing a little bit of work that I had intended to have them do, but I had them do the bulk of the work. And I did a couple like, you know, pre-pipetting some things and and a little bit of bridge work to set samples up from one day to the next so that they could do the bulk of the work in that time frame. And I've been working on trying to get sequenceable data out of biology students for many, many years. And so uh, this was the first time I've ever had students generate bi- sequenceable data. So it was a very exciting project. Yeah, fantastic. So... Well, Paul, thank you for joining me. This is an amazing conversation. As I told you, there was no way I was going to get you in under an hour. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let, me, uh, let me say my credits. Music on this and every episode is by Jake Jenkins and Ex-Magicians. You can subscribe to this or give feedback to this if you go to lifeoftheschool.org. You can leave feedback also on Twitter at Life of the School or at Mr. Matthew Tweets. You can also follow Paul Strode. Paul, what's your Twitter handle? Um, it is P.K. Strode. P.K. Strode, at P.K. Strode. You can subscribe to this and every other episode of uh, Life of School on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, every place else that you can get episodes. So uh, this is going to be, this is our Christmas edition. Um, (laughs) So this will come out the week of, I believe it is the week of the 19th, and that will be our last episode of 2016. We'll come back in in January. Uh, So 
Paul, thank you again for joining me. This has been an awesome conversation. Yes, Aaron. This was really fun. And, um, and I will talk to everybody soon. 